Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Hedge, a podcast from Scribeham, where we go in search of the people, places, traditions, and tales that shape Britain's rural landscape. I recently wrote a piece for Scribeham about a party two or three Christmases ago when I cooked rabbit arancini. It was a three-day-long project involving a trip to North Yorkshire in the snow. They probably were the best thing I've ever cooked, but it turned out I'd made more than enough. It was the peak of veganism and half the people who turned up to the party just stuck to breadsticks. Curiously, as noted in a piece a couple of weeks ago on Scribehand by the brilliant Zoe Colville, the tide seems to be rushing back down the beach on veganism. Lots of people I know who used to make a big thing of only really eating vegetables are pretty carnivorous again, but the thing that saddens me about it is that many of them seem to have gone from one extreme to the other. They're very much back on beef, but They've got no idea where it comes from or how it was farmed, and I'm not sure many of them even care that much. Beef production, we're told by people like George Monbiot, is destroying the world. To him, it doesn't seem to matter whether it's feedlot beef straight out of South America or grass-fed native beef from a croft on Skye. It's all bad. And I suppose for him, as journalists say, it's all copy, but what is the truth? In this episode, I try to work out whether it's actually okay to eat steak from time to time. Is it actually possible, as some people would have you believe, to buy beef produced in a way that makes the countryside a better place, a place where nature can thrive? Or is that just bullshit pumped out by big beef? I travel the country in this episode, from Scotland to Soho, speaking to scientists, restaurant owners, and a Cornish butcher who thinks that veganism is the best thing that's ever happened to his business. But first up, I'm in Galloway, speaking to the farmer, Sunday Times best-selling author, and scribehound writer Patrick Laurie. Patrick has 36 Riggit Galloways in his fold, and as he sees it, they do a brilliant job of creating and maintaining habitat for the likes of curlew, lapwing, and black grouse. I once got a call from the Times literary editor asking me to write him a piece on authors in rural Britain who best capture the spirit of the place they live in, and Patrick Laurie was like, two or three on my list. He has a really interesting and in some ways quite painful relationship with Galloway. He's very aware of what's been lost culturally there. And a lot of what he does is about trying to think about that, but also rekindle that. And his cattle are a big part of that. And when I go to see him, it's a really cold day. The sky is a kind of bleak gray wash. There are lots of ducks around. And he is, as I so often think of him being, which is sitting on a small chair, smoking a rolled up cigarette, next to a pig that was slaughtered the previous day. We head down the drive in Patrick's new truck. Patrick isn't a man who likes his cars, but his last one was falling apart, so he's got himself a new truck. And we go to go and look at his herd of rigots. And I want him to tell me about them, what makes them so special, and what makes them so hardy, and what is it that they do for the land? the claims and the science that's coming out. I don't think anybody is, has been completely at peace with what we're doing because everybody can do slightly better. Recently, there's been a bit more focus on quality over quantity of beef. Um, yeah. And I think that what these guys are doing in terms of conservation outweighs any potential harm they'd be causing environmentally or in a global sense for, for climate change. So, what is their, their function here in terms of... Is this, this is conservation grazing, would this you This is conservation grazing, yeah. yeah. But um, it's on an area, you'll see, but it's on an area sort of ex-quarry 
an old granite quarry, an old Victorian granite quarry oh, here. Really? So there's no... Which is why Dalbiti just over there is sort of grey and... This is an area where before sort of pre-industrial quarrying, this was where men would come with teams of horses and actually dig... Oh really? Wow. ...rock out of the ground. When would they have stopped quarrying here? Here, 100 years ago probably. Right, um, right. But as a result, this land is a mixture of rock and bog, basically. There's very little else that this piece of ground juice can sustain, yeah, aside yeah. from grass for cattle, and it's quite good for waders. And the cattle have an impact on, on the waders. Absolutely, yeah. So there's a balance to strike. As I say, if everybody's looking more seriously at the sustainability of their farming enterprise, I am too. And I suppose to start with, I wanted just to do conservation. I was only interested in the conservation aspects of this. Yeah. But there's something quite addictive about farming, which has made me want to get better stock. And potentially, there's, there is a a natural sort of growth in terms of you you want better animals and you want yeah, to achieve yeah. better animals you need more animals and so there's a balance always to strike between what you're trying to do for conservation and trying to produce quality livestock so is the rigget is a is a very old breed is that yeah it was so the riggets were original they were they were an original color of galloways and then they got selected against right and now they've been sort of slightly brought back into life again because even when they had sort of completely vanished altogether, you'd get the odd throwback. You'd get the odd one that turned up in this pattern, which is when you talk about Galloways, people generally think of belted Galloways. They think of a black cow with a white stripe around its tummy. And this is a black cow, generally, is a black cow with a white stripe which runs down its back. Yeah. Uh, and it's got a white face with black ears and a black nose. And um, what does rigget actually mean? It's an old Norse origin word, well, Scots word, really, but it's just about, it means the rig, as in the rig of its back. It's sort of oh, indicating really? the white rig of its back. You get black riggets, white riggets, red riggets, you get all sorts of different colours. And that's a red one standing, sort of looking pretty angrily across the front of us. Oh, she yeah. belongs to my son, and she is beautiful. She is exactly what you want from a rigget Galloway cow, but she's just quite an unpredictable temper she's never done any harm but you just the way she rolls her eyes sometimes you think yep yeah, you don't want yeah. me to get to get right in amongst you how old, your son is how old three four he's going to be four in january yeah and did he buy her at, at the market <laughs> <laughs> took a day off nursery uh no i never wanted red riggets and i ended up being given her by somebody who was trying to reduce their numbers just as he was being born right and so at the time she was the odd one out in a herd of black and white cows she was a red one but since then, as you can see, I've got a few other red and white ones which have appeared. Riggets don't breed true. You don't get a rigget bull and a rigget cow and you get a rigget calf. You, oh, you really? might have a rigget bull and a rigget cow and you might get a black calf or you might get a white calf or you might get a rigget calf. Or you... yeah. 75% of their calves, I've found anyway, are generally the classic rigget marking. But I mean, if I look over there, there's one that's got a, that's a, that's called a mismark. That's just got a big white splodge on her. That's a, that's a classic white Galloway there with black ears. And These black white ears. ones are really nice, aren't they? They're, They're really, really nice. Yeah. And I don't know why. Last year, I had lots of them. And this year, I didn't have any. Sort of the, it's the white with the little black ears. It's kind of... Uh, yeah, like a, like a sort of a panda bear. Yeah. No, I really like them. But as I say, this one that's standing in front of us just now, she's a classic Galloway in as much as she's very, very short. She's probably just to the bottom of my rib cage is the height of her withers. Yeah. And she comes right the way down to sort of shin height. Her depth, her depth of her chest comes almost trailing down to the ground. She got about a foot of leg, really thick, stubby leg sticks out beneath. And her. what makes them capable of living out on the hill all year round, whereas your Frisian or whatever can't can't hack it? What's what's the difference? That's not even her full winter coat yet. But she's got Galloways are really good. They've got a double layered coat. So they've got right. very tight, almost fur that sits very close to the skin, and then they've got these long guard hairs which hang sort of scruffy 
over over the top of everything else. And when they get wet, those guard hairs just funnel all the rain off them. And you can stand next to them and watch them getting wet. And they're dripping. They're not soaking the rain. They're shedding it. Um, yeah. So that's a really yeah. cool effect. And it means then that they they basically don't ever get wet. They never get really? wet to the skin. And they can go, I mean, even in Canada, they've had them down to sort of minus 15, minus 20 degrees Celsius. They're fine. But they're really fine. What's, what they struggle with is in really, really deep periods of snow, which is what we don't have in Dupreet and Galloway because we're always really mild here. But we are wet and we're dank. Like today's like dank. Today, yeah. the, the word is dank for today. <laughs> Lots of local farmers here. And I'm really interested in not just the cows, but the culture that goes with them and the local farmers who work with them. And that's a lot of the stuff I write about. Really good piece of advice I heard is that if you have to cut a cow's feet in order to maintain it, the expression is uh, cut its feet, cut its throat. Basically, it means if you're going to have to do any kind of that kind of intervention, these yeah. cows immediately aren't worth keeping. Oh, really? That's interesting. And, and the more commercial they've got, the more commercial things people have done with them, the more likely you are to get those problems. Like yeah. These animals are yeah. designed for you to leave them alone. They, do, they do not, yeah. need, not need that kind of stuff done. Yeah. And occasionally yeah. you'll get animals where you, like, you can see their feet, you're immediately like, no, nah, it's not going to do it. It's no. not going to fill the job of a Galloway. What do you pay for riggets? Generally... Like a rigget bull, what, what's, the, what's the record? I don't think there is a record. I don't think there are enough. Um, each year, there'll be half a dozen pretty good rigget bulls sold, and they'll be. Like I'd be five, surprised six, if they're right? making two. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd really. Be surprised wow. Two thousands. And a, be- uh, a belted bull will make. Belted bulls can go up. They're just recently they keep breaking the record, but they go up eight. Really? Ten wow. Thousands. wow. I mean, those are specifically good bulls. As a run-of-the-mill cows and breeding stock, riggets are about half the value of belted Galloways, and that's only. That's only the markings. People just know Belted Galloways and they're interested in Belted Galloways. Yeah. But these guys, if you're interested in conservation grazing, it doesn't really matter what their markings are. They're still going to be eating still, the grass yeah. and living the life that you need them to live to suit the birds and the are wildlife. These, are these, is it, would it be right to say that these guys are particularly suited to Galloway and Highlands are particularly suited to the Highlands and, or, and you know, or can you... You know, it's a native cattle, a native cattle, or a native cattle, native cattle. Highlanders do stuff that Galloways don't, and Galloways do stuff that Highlanders don't. And it's more just picking the right tool for the job. Some people just love Highland cows, and it's a decision made entirely on aesthetic. Oh, yeah. But I must say, when I've seen, I've got a friend who breeds Highlanders, when you see the additional kit and equipment he needs to work with Highlanders that have got horns. Oh, really? In terms of the crushes and races yeah. and yeah. taking them to the abattoir. Lots of abattoirs won't deal with horned cows. They're a pain in the ass, and, and, yeah. and the additional cost is really just for the pleasure of looking at a cow that's got horns. Galloways yeah. haven't had horns for centuries. They've been, Really? What, but they did. They did at one point. All, yeah, all cows all originally cows had them, but, yeah. but Galloways, I think, are what, probably some of the first cows that were bred not to have horns. It's called polled when they haven't got when horns. They, yeah. That polled gene is very dominant, so if you cross you put a highland bull onto any of these cows, the calves won't have horns. The hornlessness, polled cattle always trumps horned cattle. Are you, uh, are you a sort of early adopter in terms of, are they going to become, you know, or... or... I don't know what the, what the future holds. I certainly wasn't the first person. There's been some really good people doing great stuff with riggets. But I got into this 10 years ago, and I now, in a way that when you said rigget Galloways, people would say, well, tell me what that is. Yeah. Whereas yeah. now, particularly in hill cattle, circles people do know them a bit more I mean they're never going to trump Belted Galloways the world loves Belted Galloways you see them all over the country you know wherever you are yeah totally and they don't have that immediate brand recognition but for me do you know I think actually 
because rigets are so traditional and they go back to such old-fashioned genetics, you don't get rigget Galloway cattle from anything but the oldest and most traditional type. Yeah. Everybody says, oh, belted Galloways are so easy to keep and they're so low maintenance and so low cost. Normally they're saying that because they're used to a commercial breed. And yeah, yeah. they're a big step down. But I think rigets are sometimes a step beneath belted Galloways. And every breed's got a commercial end and a traditional end. But the traditional end of Rigget Galloways, to me, is very low maintenance. For a start, there's no way I'd have 35 of these cows if they were costing me yeah. anything to keep. Yeah. The cattle culture that you're talking about, obviously there are far fewer cattle here than there, there once were. What, what do you mean by the cattle culture? There's probably a similar number of cows here than there ever was, but they are now being held and managed by a fraction of the number of right. farmers. So, right. so that level of intensity has really gone up. But that idea, the really slow idea, when you go back to 17th century, Galloway was pumping cattle into England to be sold at Smithfield Market. So there was a, oh, like really? a massive emergence of a, of, a, of a cattle culture which set up here after the Act of Union, after 1707, when we Scottish farmers finally had access to English markets. In Galloway, we just went, oh my God, we do cows and we've got a market of people with an, who want an inexhaustible demand yeah. for these cows. So there was a whole a whole kind of culture emerged around the cows, which... Is, is that there in kind of music and poetry and writing? And... Writing, certainly. Yeah. Um, we're not, which is a very, very Calvinistic Presbyterian part of the country. We're not, and the fact that we have talked or written about cows at all means that they've made a massive mark on us, given that lots of other things that we do here that we love we never mentioned at all um, that's just the way the way that the, sort of the, the people in the country there is works. a sense I mean you know not to be sort of downbeat and, and dour about it but there is I mean you, you obviously the subtitle of your book was Life in a Vanishing Landscape there's a feeling here I think of of emptiness and, and the cattle and, and you know the decline in people working the cattle is probably part of that yeah it is it totally is and that's why when you get people who remember these cows even as they were in the 50s and 60s it's really valuable because the, the, a lot of that information how to work these cows and they don't fit commercial models they need a different approach and a lot of that stuff is kind of enshrined in folklore and wisdom and people just knowing people just having done it since they were the age yeah. of my son yeah so. yeah and, and once that chain gets broken it's very difficult to recover it again and, and and you're right there is an emptiness here and a lot of isolation a lot of loneliness a lot of people dealing with the remains of something that used to be a, like this used to be a big deal we're standing just the other side of the hill there used to be the main line railway from Dumfries to Stranraer I mean this yeah. was a jumping place in the and 60s and you'd have had a lot of black grouse there and all sorts of things yeah, there in life there in terms in, of you know, birds in, it isn't there totally in terms of human culture and in terms of biodiversity we've lost a lot in the last 25 30 years and these cows to me are a really good way like i love it my neighbors here they all generally have commercial cows now right but they love these cows because their father had them and so there's oh, still really? a living memory yeah of, still a living memory of them and fine they're slower and they're less profitable than commercial cows but if they weren't those guys would be back doing this yeah. in an instant yeah and, and they're not they're not sort of looking back over their shoulders saying well that was rubbish we're really glad we don't have to do that anymore <laughs> they're looking at what they're doing and saying oh god this is really hard we wish there was still money in this kind of, on this kind of farming it sounds like there's a well, load of long-tailed tits look a stack of them coming over there's always long-tailed tits up and down the river and then there's a sparrow mopping them up fast as you really can go after we've had a look at patrick's cattle we walk down through the reeds to have a look at one of his ponds and you get a real sense there that the place has changed over the centuries and Patrick spends a lot of time thinking about that. So I asked him a little more about that. I wanted to know how it's changed. 
it's sort of in a sense we're almost looking at sort of Dumfries and Galloway's agricultural story here. You've got forestry plantations, the three turbines on the on the horizon. Yeah, and those are only tiny turbines too, by comparison to some of the big ones. But this landscape has seriously changed. So this, where we're standing now, is would have been a post ice age loch that would have oh, run really? all the way up to the top of the hill there. Yeah. But over the last however many centuries, look of, at that road here there, just running through. And look at the mallard as well. Wow. Um, there's what? How many mallard are there? Twelve. Yeah, probably 12. I wonder if they want to come in, do they? And okay. what do the... Um, we always talk about you know, conservation grazing and that kind of thing. What, what are the cattle actually doing to this landscape to make it a better place for endangered wildlife? So we're standing in the middle of a lot of rushes. Cows are very good at breaking up bits and pieces of rushes and introducing more diversity, getting more different plant species in here. Is that slightly to do with the density that you're farming at? Part and it's also partly to do with the fact that lots of parasites don't like acid soil and this is very uh. acid grassland. Now this next bit gets a little bit complicated. Some years ago I read a piece that Patrick wrote about native cattle and black grouse and he said that if you've got a small population of black grouse in a glen you'll find that if you put native cattle out on the hill in the winter the black grouse will be there on that patch in the spring and essentially it's about cowpats and breaking up the ground, but it's got to be cowpats from cattle that haven't been treated with chemicals. So the presumption has always been, the sort of traditional agricultural credo has always been, treat them and then you don't have to worry about it. Whereas actually I'm starting to think they haven't needed treating for seven years. And when you see now a cowpat, on a summer's day, a cowpat here is instantly covered in dung beetles it's covered in flies all sorts of things which and is that what the, the waders want to an extent that's what the waders yeah. want that's what lots of wildlife wants um, yeah. and those cowpats are probably gone in two or three days and when yeah. I look back to back in the old days when I was treating them those cowpats would be there for a week they'd be there for a fortnight they'd be there for a oh, month really? um, and it was a really noticeable they were almost difference. sort of poison, poisonous to so those yeah. The, yeah those treatments are poisoning poisoning yeah. the insects and as a result like curlews here are really really scarce they're doing really badly and we've got three pairs between here and the village of Kogunyan which is just two or three miles up the hill they're doing really really badly they would have been here partly because of the cows originally so trying to turn the clock back on that a little bit and yeah. make sure the cows are more prominent curlews obviously don't eat cowpats cows obviously don't there's no kind of direct mutual direct, yeah. um it's all to do with the effects of good cattle grazing. So you said you've got, what, 32? Was that right? 35 here. 35. Yeah. And is that, would, could you put more on here, or is this at about capacity? How you, do can you, have, sort of... you could have a lot more on here. But the, the property, to an extent, this is 60 acres, of which 30 is very, very rough stuff, peat, granite, what we just described. Yeah. Well, have a look over the, over the dike there. It's much more productive grassland, and that's where the curlews want to be. That's interesting. And so I generally shut everything off the productive grassland in the summer and hope and try and create that kind of undisturbed habitat for the curlews knowing that the cows have done good stuff all winter yeah you shut them off first of may got a lone mallard flying across the sky in front of us there, just flying away there's a lot know. of wildlife here isn't there there does there is a lot of wildlife here in the winter when you get i can say january this year there were massive storms and enormous floods and this whole bottom down here flooded and you can get sort of 10 15,000 pigfoot geese you get big big rafts of pintail come up onto here teal widgeon like this place is wriggling with wildfowl in the winter when it floods i um, read um <coughs> always a dangerous thing to do when it's your own work but you know fine when it's somebody else's a a amazon review which said about your book which everybody should read very very good book <laughs> native life in a vanishing landscape but but this guy had said great book but 
what Patrick Laurie doesn't ever do is talk about the profitability of his farming enterprise. Mm -hmm. Probably wouldn't have made for a particularly good chapter in the start start of that book. Are are you a hobbyist, a conservationist, or what's your... your, As a business, does this work? Does farming like this work? This pays for itself, and some, but it wouldn't be... Nobody's living nowadays off the back of 35 slow-grown native cows. Um, What this does is allow me to encourage other people to do similar things and show that it's not... I think people think that it is kind of sort of financially disastrous and actually you're living... On the, on the on the on the on, bread line. On the bread line You've got happen. a pig hanging up, and you, you know you're <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this isn't my full time work, partly because it's such small densities, uh, such small numbers of cows. But it does mean that I can um, help other people, help other farmers. A lot of my work is in consultancy, so I help other farmers do this kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I help other landowners do this kind of thing. I feed direct into wader conservation projects, which need to understand. Like they've got no practical understanding of how yeah ca- yeah agriculture and conservation work together. I wouldn't be able to do almost any of my other work if I wasn't also doing doing this. This This pays for itself and produces a few thousand more each year, but that's not enough to keep the electricity going. Um, But on a bigger scale, there are people who are doing exactly this on a bigger scale. I mean, I went the other day to a Brazilian supermarket near me in Camberwell, and I have to say it was the worst beef I've ever had, <laughs> and probably some of the most ecologically harmful beef I've, I've ever had. If you want to buy your beef, if you want to buy stuff that, that you know, has helped, has helped waders and helped conservation, where can you actually do that? It's just a matter of research. I think there, there is a lot, of, a lot of this meat is available, but you've just got to do some digging, got to go and yeah. find out about, about um, how the beef's actually been produced. My problem is... I don't often finish things, so I, no. tend to, I tend to grow things to 18 months old, and then I sell them to finishers who then want to take them under 30 months, make sure that they're killed under 30 months, because that's when all the cut-offs and the legislation comes in. Which is to do with... Which is to do with BSE, which yeah. is to do with lots of things. I would find it very difficult to finish cows. Just because you don't have the ground? Or just because yeah. I don't have the sheds, I don't have, yeah. I don't yeah. have the, the inputs. But I can produce good cows, good young cows at 18 months old, yeah, for sale, and people will buy those and take them on and and yeah. push them over the line. <laughs> Steak is expensive, famously, but you know, is it expensive enough? You know, if, if I pay seven pounds for a, a nice ribeye, should I be paying much, much more for the sort of thing that you're producing? Or it's funny, we've got this idea in our heads that steak is worth a certain amount, and we pay what we expect to pay for it, regardless of the kind of input costs that go into it. So. Mm. Uh, if you really, really worked, drilled down to what would make my cows profitable to finish, yeah, you'd end up, you would end up paying a bit more for them. But it's really difficult to keep that money in the producer's pocket because as soon as you've sold it to the abattoir, they've then sold it to the restaurant who then needs to pay a chef and a, a whole restaurant full of workers. By the time you've got a steak for even the top-end steak, sort of 27, 28 pounds being served on your plate before you, the, obviously the farmer's not making that yeah. money. It warrants a bit of thinking about, but certainly when it's always frustrating to me that when you see people sitting down at a, sitting down for dinner at a restaurant and they'll have a steak for like the best piece of steak in the house for 25, 26 pounds and they'll wash it down with a bottle of wine that costs 40, 40 yeah. 50 pounds. If, if you went to the supermarket and you saw pictures of curlew or lapwing or whatever on, on packets of beef, mm-hmm. do you think people, you know, would the public go for that? This idea that you're, you're helping make the countryside a more biodiverse? I think people are, doing, people are doing that and yeah. that kind of work is starting to come through. At the same time, you've got to look at it an awareness-raising project which 
largely falls to the farmer, which is then time, more time spent on doing it. And you can, yes. you can add value, but adding value costs money. Over the past couple of months, when I've said to people that I want to know more about native cattle and the impact they have on the land, the name Patrick Laurie has come up a lot, but the name Phil Warren has also come up a great deal. There is, I think, a feeling among some farmers, shepherds, gamekeepers, that they aren't always listened to by scientists, that, that scientists sometimes think that actually their opinions aren't hugely important. Phil is a guy who really bucks that trend. He spent his life out on the hill listening to people and trying to understand the culture, I think, around cattle as much as the impact that they have, which is a really interesting thing. Who are you and what do you what do you do? Why does everybody say that I should go and speak to you? I'm being a research scientist working on black grouse in northern England and parts of Scotland now for the last 25 years. One of the big issues with black grouse in this part of the world, in northern England, what limits their population growth is their breeding productivity. And that is very strongly linked with when the chicks hatch in June and they require lots of insects. Insect availability is linked with habitat quality. It's also linked with weather. It's a major driver. But if you want more black grouse, what you need to have is uh, the breeding better. And okay, I've been working on them a long time, but that's still the major part of the puzzle that we need to solve. So just in simple terms, is it the case that if you have native cattle on the ground, you have more insects and therefore the black grouse do better? Some work that we did about 15 years ago now was suggestive that where you had cattle grazing, there was more sawfly larvae, and that's a key chick food, which is a small caterpillar. So where cattle were grazing compared to where there was only sheep, there was twice as many. They are a key chick food, but it's quite noticeable. If you walk through a lot of these grasslands where cattle have been grazing, it's more mixed, both in structure and also uh, plant diversity. There's more flowers, better structure. When you say structure, what do you actually mean by that? mean that, uh, so you'll have clumps of rushes, but they'll be broken up with areas of short vegetation, bits of poached ground. What you'll see in the uplands... It's not that obvious to many people now, but there's been a massive destocking over the last 30 years since the end of headish payments. I think Teesdale now, which is the dale I work in, has got the lowest numbers of sheep that we've seen in over 100 years. And what you're seeing is a change in vegetation. That's It's a subtle change, but you're getting a lot more tall rush, a lot more rank grassland. Well, for those of us who spend too much time on social media, we're always told that sheep and cattle are destroying the planet and that sheep particularly are destroying the uplands is that not how you see things as somebody who actually works in the field it's like anything it's anything in moderation uh traditional farming practices have worked well with the land over millennia there was just some very poor government policies post-war uh which were headage payments which were to increase farmers were paid to have many animals a mm. lot of animals rather than how many animals that the land could support and subsequently you had overgrazing and then a change in vegetation structure and composition to more to species that are grazing tolerant we've sort of gone too far the other way now it's like it's nearly a slow abandonment that's gone on and now what you're trying to do is manage these grasslands that have got dominated by rush competitive grass species mm. uh, they're not a species rich anymore they're they're quite dense and they need breaking up. And unfortunately, sheep aren't the best tool for doing that. And that's where cattle can come in and be incredibly valuable. And in terms of 
creating a greater abundance of insects and larvae. What is it that the cattle are actually doing that encourages those things? Their grazing patterns is that they're breaking it up. And the sheep are more like a, a lawnmower. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> so you'll end up with really short and then you'll have patches of tall bush that they won't eat. But a cat, cattle will go in and they'll, with their feet, trampling, but also they'll, they'll rip and break it up and make a much better structure in the sward. And what does the dung do? What purpose does that serve? Well, if you ever look at cattle dung, usually covered in... Little beetles and flies and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, food for birds. And if you use a lot of chemicals, if you're farming on a more sort of industrial, presumably you don't see as many insects in the dung, on the dung. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, some of these doses remove invertebrates such as that. So that's not a positive thing to do. That's really interesting. What are you working on at the moment? We're interested currently actually in the benefits of cattle grazing for black grouse. One of the key things I said earlier is that we do need to get these birds breeding better. Mm. And it's how to how to manage these rough grasslands on the on the moorland fringe better for species like black grouse and also the breeding waders. And cattle are a very good tool for delivering that. But it's just proving that they are the best and also then getting that into agricultural policy so you can roll it out at a wider scale. It's very difficult in the uplands now is that if you're an older farmer, it's a lot easier having sheep than it is having cattle. You need a lot less equipment. You can get away with just a quad bike. If you've got cattle, you need bigger equipment. They're a bigger, powerful animal. So you need to support cattle grazing in many of these upland fringes. Presumably, you know, if I tomorrow bought 300 acres in Teesdale and decided that I was going to run native cattle across it, apart from knowing nothing about that, even if I did know something about farming in that way, presumably the economics of it are difficult. Presumably it's a struggle to make that actually work. Yes, that, that is the problem with many of these upland farms is that their, their economics are marginal and you need to have a number of different ways of making money it's not as straightforward as that and that's where agricultural support systems if they're targeted well can deliver quite a lot at a landscape scale but you've got to have the people with the skills to have cattle and then you've got to encourage them to keep them i mean presumably there's not enough support at the moment is the impact of cattle starting to be understood more there is pockets of cattle grazing that are going on but it's one of these where you need to speak to the individuals involved to see how they their economic model is working because each farm is different. It's just a different way of running a business. But you, you can see that there is new businesses coming on stream that are solely cattle farms that seem to be uh, economically viable. Presumably, I mean, your focus is black grouse, but people always say that where you have cattle grazing... You often have snipe and you often have curlew and you often have lapwings. What are the other bird species that benefit from cattle being there? The thing about black grouse is that they are a pretty good indicator in the uplands of a wide suitable habitats for sweeter birds. So if you have it right for black grouse, you'll have it right for things like curlew, snipe, lapwing, breeding red shank, etc. Because they like some tall habitats for nesting, but they also like shorter areas for foraging. Similar to all these other key moorland fringe species. And also another key species that we have up here are grey partridges. They live in similar habitats to the black game. And again, their key food species is lots of sawfly larvae when their chicks hatch in June. So if you're getting it right for black grouse, you're getting it right for this whole group of different species. So that's why they're such a good indicator. If you can get it right for them, it rolls out for wider benefits. 
It's really interesting thinking about grey partridges in the uplands because we always think of them as, you know, a bird that you see in Suffolk or Norfolk or Downland. I went to go see a guy in Barningham and there were grey partridges everywhere there. It was one of those things where we were looking at a black grouse leg and I just sat there wishing that all of those people who really hate the idea of gamekeepers in the uplands could have been there as well because the things that we were seeing, it was something I'll remember probably my whole life. The yeah. biggest black grouse leg I'd ever seen, you know, he was in love with red shank. Everywhere we went, he stopped to look at red shank. Yeah, that's that's the thing, you see. If you get it right for black grouse, you get it right for that whole sweet species. You manage these moorland fringes on the edges of places where there's full-time gamekeepers managed for grouse, you get a lot of wider biodiversity benefits. And what you've just explained there is what I do take a lot of people to see, uh, black grouse lex, and it's also the other things that you see the same time you'll hear curly the same time you're watching black mouse if you're a fundamentalist rewilder and you would look at the uplands and you would say that there shouldn't really be cattle there because they wouldn't have been there originally what would have been there originally that was providing the same function or how do you kind of understand that situation or rather how would you answer that question there's always been natural grazing of some form the issue with rewilding is that you need to add management into it what are your natural grazers as you as you rightly said because otherwise in many cases you just end up with a swamp to start with of competitive grass species depending on the site and your biodiversity can be quite low so you've got to look at your natural grazers whether it be deer in the past it would have been wild cattle many millennia ago if you look at many of these rewilding schemes they are looking constantly at bringing in grazers whether it be pigs or cattle or ponies you know there's lots of things that some people would call rewilding and other people would look at and say that's not rewild do you know what i mean it's the kind of it depends slightly where you want to put your flag in the ground whether it's rewilding or or not yeah it's difficult in this country isn't it because everywhere is managed to some sort of degree even rewilding is managed and it's also the landscape scale approach to it is that when we when our rewilding processes go on, they're, they're relatively small in context to proper wild landscape in Scandinavia. So I went to visit Jake Fines recently at Holcomb, and he was saying they got a whole load of Belted Galloways in because they were told that Belted Galloways could eat junkers. And he was saying, you know, 12 years on or whatever, it turns out that they probably can't. But what? <laughs> so, I mean, bracken, can they smash through bracken? How does their diet differ to, say, a Holstein, one of those commercial breeds of cattle? It depends what's available to them. They will eat junkers if there's nothing else. And maybe Jake needs to stop putting out that lovely silage from what's Yes, I would have thought that uh, parts of uh, his Norfolk grasslands where they are, there'll be lots of sweet areas that they're preferentially going to move on to rather than tackling the areas that he wanted them to That's graze. It's so one of the problems with cattle grazing that we've had in the past is keeping them where you want because they're not going to go sit somewhere where the uh, grazing isn't good. But you, then you need shepherding or now with the new uh, collars that you can yes. put on cattle, you can actually control them into areas where they can then manipulate vegetation that they probably don't want to be in. And does that give them a little buzz or how, how does it keep them in the right area? It gives them a little buzz because say you've got a bed of uh, rank grassland that nothing will go anywhere near. You can actually focus the cattle onto that and they will at least smash it up for mm. a period of time and then you can allow them to move on to other places. I don't know if Phil gets to experience the delights of Soho very much, but I really hope he does. After I'd spoken to him, I went to Soho to see Sophie Bathgate. Sophie's a really cool lady, and she runs a big Soho institution, Sophie's Steakhouse. They also have this cocktail bar downstairs, Jack Solomon's, that used to be a boxing gym. Really, really cool, and they hang the meat down there as well. But 
I wanted to ask her, look, is it kind of mad running a steakhouse? You know, is anybody actually going to be eating steak in five years' time? But when I got there, there was a lot of steak on display. They had the wood fire going, it was sizzling away, and there were lots of chefs in the kitchen who were really going at it. And you're going to have to just listen as carefully as you can, because as is always the case in busy restaurants when they're frying lots of steak, the extractor fan was on at full blast. I think that we've got to go back to how we used to eat yeah, meat. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it should be, you know, for, for us, we want people to treat it as a special occasion. Yeah. You, know, you come, I don't want you to eat supermarket Steak beef every night. No. At home, I want no. you to come out and have an amazing, yeah. you know, dry-aged, really good quality Because in one sense, like two or three years ago, if someone said, oh, I'm thinking of setting up a steak restaurant, you would think, but that's crazy because, you know, within a decade, none of us are going to be eating meat anymore. Yeah. Now, we were just touching on, I mean, it feels like that's become sort of, people are, people are starting to understand narratives around sustainable meat. It all comes down to quality. We should be eating seasonally. We should be eating high quality beef, chicken, lamb, whatever meat it is. Should we be importing beef from Brazil or? How do they even get it? How do they even get it? Presumably on boat. It comes on. It must come on big. It's a long way. Yeah, it's fat packed and aged on route, isn't it? Mm -hmm. On the water. Whereas that's the opposite of what we're doing. Has Brexit changed anything in terms of the meat we eat? Or? Because we've always bought our meat from Devon and Cornwall. Yeah. No. The price of beef has gone up because the pool is it's more shrinking. Than. And more and more farmers are throwing in the towel. Yeah. Because it's so tough to make money. Paying enough for... Well, that was actually really, I had that conversation with the other Philip Warren that whenever they go and look at conservation projects, they always say, oh, you know, you should put some cattle on here. And this is people look at the numbers and say, actually, it's, you know, it's more trouble than it's worth kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, so it's, yeah, that's really interesting. So he was saying there's a lot more sheep that they see now in the uplands than, than beef, which just don't have the same effect. You've got to think big picture. How much can restaurants do to create narratives around food? Are you kind of conscious that when people come here they experience eating better beef or native beef I mean does that matter do you yeah, tell matters, people that it or, matters hugely yeah. I get cross when some mates of mine will say to me oh, you know went to wherever and had a homemade burger and I know damn well that you know yeah it's not homemade we know where all our produce comes from mm. particularly our beef and we use every part that we Buy and you know it's it's genuinely homemade, and I think we've believed for too long a narrative that's written on menus, which is yeah. not actually true. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think that those that will survive, I think, are the ones that have authenticity and. Oh, really? You think? Yeah. yeah. I think the consumer is getting smarter, which is great, and hopefully they start to see that they see the quality for what it is and and don't object to paying for quality. The future of the restaurant trade in Britain, do you think that kind of, is, is the mid-market where it's going to become hardest sort of thing? I mean, our experience was, you know, in 2009, ironically, we had the best year we'd had because a lot of people, I suppose, had been used to sp spending in quite top-end restaurants, yeah. decided that they would spend in you know, mid-tier mid, yeah, mid yeah, restaurants yeah. and that sort of Mayfair crowd kind yeah. of 
slightly sidestepped towards us, which we really benefited from. It's great. So the, your your thing like is good quality beef. Do you think every restaurant to a degree needs a, a, a hook, as it were, in terms of like a story? Just just I mean, kind of good food that, that brings people through the door. Or not really? You know, fun and escapism. Not too many rules. Yeah, and yeah. It, it should be it should be a, a good night out. Mm. You know, so it it's not enough just to do beef. It's got to be fun as well. I mean, the reason that we started to serve native green beef and really took a massive interest in where it came from was initially about quality yeah. and consistency and then it became much more linked in with the chefs understanding the product that they were using and the fact that we were dry aging it on site and then they were butchering it meant they spent much more time slowly kind of nurturing it on the grill yeah. resting yeah. the steak so that sort of complete journey for the perfect steak on the plate yeah yeah was enhanced by the fact that we were using a great product and what are we actually looking at here this is like so is this, here what, is this got, what everyone calls tomahawk or we call it an axe handle so you've got the porterhouse here yeah. which is with the sirloin fillet you know an inch and a half thick so the first four cuts of the loin and then you've got different sizes of axe handle. So we hang them, then sear them, grill them, and then they rest before they go out. And that's actually what we're looking at here, charcoal itself. Or is so wood, wood and charcoal we use. Right, okay. yeah. Why do you use that as a... I think flavour-wise, it's, it's nice to have a bit of variety. You don't want too much of either. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the balance is great. What sort of cow will these come from? Do you know? So, I mean, we use a variety of native breeds yeah. through Philip Warren. Um, we use native breed beef because of the size. Yeah. Um, we want that kind of mid-sized cow, so you get a nice thick steak as opposed to much more commercial cow which gives a bigger wider flatter steak which is in our opinion not as um, why flatter it's a bigger you know if oh, you right, take the yeah. rib eye it's a much bigger eye because yeah, it's a bigger yeah, taste yeah. whereas with native breeds they you know they're not the most commercial no. cows for a, for you know a butcher but you get a much better kind of thicker steak which is what you want I don't even know if, if, if restaurants think like this but are you kind of midway to being top end, or, top, or where do you sit yourself, and how happy are your customers to pay big money for good beef? So I think it all comes down to trust. I mean, we've been we've been in the steakhouse game, as it were, for 21 years, nearly yeah. 22 now, and we've built up a reputation where people trust the quality of beef. And yes. You know, that, that comes from our relationship with Philip Warren and the fact that, you know, his his whole ethos is to have a suckling herd, so keep the herd together. It's yeah. the opposite of commercial farming. He specifically chooses people that have the same values. Yeah. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. people start over time, they realise that, yes, you can go to the pub and have a steak for... I don't know, 28 quid. But you are going to get okay quality. Yeah. It'll be wet aged. It probably won't be dry aged. It certainly won't be a native breed because that would be impossible. And, you know, it, it comes back to trust. Yeah. So yeah. people come here because they know that the beef 
is is extremely good quality and that we it's something that we hang our hat on. I mean, let's just go with one of these. So you're looking for some lovely marbling. You're looking for a nice eye, um, fat eye on these. Which is Similar. what the eye actually means. It's the it's the kind of the, the fat. Yeah. In yeah. terms yeah. of. Um, you know, a nice, a nice piece of fat right in the centre, perfect eye. And then, so for the porterhouse, you're looking for, you know, a really nice bit of fillet on here. So we only want the first four cuts if we're serving a porterhouse. If you, as you come down the loin, you get, you know, more of a T-bone and therefore you get a smaller piece of fillet. But you're looking for colour, marbling, um, Where it's dark is that because of how you're aging it? I mean, that's that should we should we should definitely cook these tonight. Oh really? Otherwise, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's gone. I mean, it, you won't taste it from a from that point of view. But these will be cooked tonight, and you know that's that's what you're looking for rather yeah. than this. So the, the slightly darker colour, yeah. not yeah. the bright red. And can sort of native breeds like this can they cope with more hanging as it were definitely i mean for us we take primals and we continue the aging process here what does that so, mean primals so we take um whole i kind of thought that i i knew something about it. i'm really i'm realizing i know nothing about it. um <laughs> whole four ribs whole loins right okay so we keep the meat on the bone yeah and yeah. then continue the aging process here so philip warren will age to maybe two three weeks and then we finish finish off the beef here which means during lockdown for instance we had a, a whole meat fridge full and carried on aging and when we reopened we had a hundred day stay really yeah wow that was another reason we went for the native and not yeah. only is the sort of complete circle knowing that you know, cheesy happy cow but you know a cows cows that stay together as a unit and are not not bought in for huge periods of time. Yeah. They're out yeah. in the fields. They're obviously going to be much happier than different form of farming. But also, then we had control. Not everybody is able to supply primals on the bone. Your average catering butcher does. You know, it's just a trader. It's, they're not. They're not dealing so in whole So how easy carcasses. actually is it for? If somebody has set up a restaurant tomorrow and wanted to do what you're doing, is that actually quite hard to do, to get a hold of the stuff you're getting hold of? Well, I think, I mean, you, you have to ask Philip Warren that, yeah. but they, I know they don't take on huge amounts of really? people yeah. because, I mean, they could grow massive, but they are very mindful of the balance yeah. Yeah. between supply. They also have a collective at the moment where they're trying to promote people staying in the farming industry because right. there's so many farmers giving up because yeah. it's, you know, there's not much profit in it. When I left Sophie's, it was just getting going, people were coming in, having cocktails, the waiters and waitresses were being briefed, and I thought, you know what, maybe I should just stay and have dinner. But I'd said I was going to train my little dog, and my little dog really needs some training. So I cycled home, back down the Walworth Road, which, um, by the way, is where Charlie Chaplin was supposedly born. It's a real South London thoroughfare. But on my way down the Walworth Road, I passed the Brazilian butcher, and I really love those guys. I go in, you know, from time to time, um, we just use hand gestures. They don't speak any English, I don't speak any Portuguese. But I've got to say, the steak they serve is horrendous. It's grey, it's flabby, it's tasteless. Um, it obviously comes over here a very long way by boat. 
And I thought as I was passing, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call up Warren's the Butcher and I'm going to ask them if they've got some steak they can send me. Hi there, is that Ian speaking? Yes, it is. Hi, Ian. I was in um, I was in London seeing Sophie at Sophie's Steakhouse, and she said that the person I had to speak to was Philip Warren because he's the he's the man when it comes to to British beef. Is that is that your dad, Philip? It is, yeah, yeah. So you've now you've taken over from him, have you? Or is he still working in the business? He used to be. No, <laughs> no, he hasn't been in for a while. He's on the farming side now. Oh right. So um, yeah, he, he's on the before it gets to the hook, and then I'm on the hook, I suppose. So are you a farmer originally, or have you always been in? In... Yeah, we've been a farming family for years. Yeah, um, I used to help on the farm. It's just, yeah, I'd have, I had nothing running around the fields after. <laughs> well, I thought I couldn't do this, but yeah, I mean, um, Dad still farms with my sister and brother-in-law, so yeah, we, we're, we're we are a farming. Family. Easier, easier being a butcher, only getting up at four in the morning or whatever you've got to do. Yeah, well, I don't <laughs> mind that because when the door's shut, everything stops really. But I'm not out in the middle of the night calving, so yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. British beef is your thing, and you know, like sustainable, environmental, environmentally friendly stuff. Is that that's that's right? Is it? Yeah. So suckled beef, um, you know, suckled as mum, grass based diet throughout. Um, cows are out all year round on the moor. Um, they come in for like one week a year when it comes to calving, but they're out all year round with the calves. Um, and then when they get a little bit older, they will come in for the wettest of winter months but it's grass cut size in front of them all the time so yeah it's it's a very natural natural traditional way of farming and look our town and our finishing farm is in the Tamar Valley in between Bobbinmore and um, Dartmoor my sister's farm's up on Bobbinmore where all the cows are well they're outdoors all year year round because the ground can take that Um, yeah it's a natural way of doing it and you need the traditional bullocks that are used to that kind of environment to be able to prosper on that land you couldn't take commercial farming so to speak and just drop it on the bottom more and expect it to work work like that so kind of our environment dictates what we farm we're lucky that what we farm is a really good product what sort of breeds are you farming down there we've got Devon cows we've got Welsh black cows we've got Galloway cows yeah and tell me the reason. The reason I'm calling is because I want to order a steak from you. But um, just before that, I mean, it felt you know two or three years ago like the whole world was going vegan. But I've seen just in the past couple of weeks headlines with um, vegan and vegetarian restaurants closing, and a few of them are saying that they are now deciding to serve meat, but they think that their customers will want kind of environmentally friendly stuff and sustainable stuff. Is that you know is is it hard being a butcher at the moment, or or are people more aware of where their food comes from, or what's what's the picture? being a butcher if you're doing it right because people are in general more aware mm, um, mm. there is a fine line of affordability you do need to take that in, into consideration but in general we're eating too much meat meat in general got too cheap is it right that you can afford a steak to eat on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night and a Saturday night probably not you know, let's get the, some value back into it so this, let's have a steak on a Saturday night that's a special occasion in the week in the week you might have a salad one night and then you might have lasagna using up some mints. <laughs> Let's get some balance back across it. So I think it's good and people are starting to question where it comes from yeah. and it should be in where the balance is. And, and a good a good butcher would be able to add context to that. You know, we, we farm cattle, we kill whole carcasses, we have to sell the whole the whole beef. Um, and we can apportion direct people to value you know, to be able to feed themselves for the week without just having the price. But in general... Veganism has been a good thing for responsible butchers. I think so, 
yeah. I want to order a steak for one, a lonely person steak. What have you, uh, what have you got? Breed-wise, we would have a number... I mean, we kill several cattle a week, so, I mean, we've got a lot of hanging. We killed some wanky cross jerseys the other week, actually. Wow. But we killed some lovely Angus cross Devons and some Hereford cross Devons few weeks ago they were from our farm um, yeah I think we've got some galleries there to be honest we've got we've generally near enough got all sorts got of sometimes it comes time of year like we wouldn't have many pure Devons now they're more of a spring summer animal this podcast started with going to see a guy in Galloway who was farming Galloways so what would you recommend if you got any ribeye any Galloway ribeye the Galloways off of Bobman Moor which will be exceptional wow um, I'm sure the gentleman's Galloways from Galloway would be <laughs> even more exceptional because um, you know when you've got an animal that comes from where it originated from like that's why we're big we're big advocates of Red Devon yeah as long yeah. as we're down here on the Cool Devon border you know this is where our, they come from so you've got some okay, you've got some and ribeye yeah. and what do you, what's your personal favourite what's your personal favourite steak cut I to be honest I, and it's not because I'm tight I prefer a rump steak I think oh really flavour in there yeah and I think there's a little there's a bit of tube if it's off a good bullock it won't be yeah. extensive I think get real flavour get the fat right yeah I think that takes well I'll tell you what why not I'll do that I'll do that so yeah. I'll, I'll order uh, I'll order a rump uh, a Galloway rump no problem alright thank you very yeah. much cheers that's right no problem That sound that you can hear is 300 grams of Belted Galloway rump steak, as recommended by Ian. Since I'm sitting here, my dear, just got back into the pub, got to get some chips on the way, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Looks incredible. That was the most amazing culinary journey from Galloway to Soho to Cornwall. And I think that what I take away from it all is that I need to be more knowledgeable about the things that I'm eating and the impact that they have on the planet. I mean, it does genuinely sadden me that I know people who have gone from not eating meat to eating pork that's raised in a way that really saddens me. It really upsets me when I see pigs being raised in cages and you know, that stuff is sold here, it's imported. So go on and eat beef, I think, but make sure that you're eating a good product because it's possible to eat a product that makes Britain a more biodiverse place and, and that supports British farmers, British farmers who are doing it right. I think veganism is, was a hype, it's a trend, but the planet is more important than that. And if we can kind of get beyond the culture wars and think about how to move forwards more sensibly and more responsibly then we'll be on to a good thing if you enjoyed this episode of beyond the hedge don't forget to subscribe and do leave the five star review if you really like what we're doing it's much appreciated